Welcome to the Neanderthal Mind, bringing you riveting, educational, humorous, and sometimes serious perspectives on our Neanderthal mind. We dive deep into why what our Neanderthal ancestors did to survive still has a profound effect on our modern mind. Take a journey with us as we roll back the clock millions of years. All right, my fellow cave dwellers, if you're ready, let's get this wheel rolling. Now here's your host and the leader of the pack, Anthony Yokolano. Hello, hello, cave dwellers. As always, welcome back. I hope your holidays were awesome and you all were able to spend some time with your family and loved ones. So, last week's episode, I hope you enjoyed the plethora of information Alan laid out there for you. This week will be nothing short of the same. We pick back up where we left off with Alan Van Arsdale just when we were getting into Jebel Arhud. But that is just the start of this machine gun of info episode that Alan shoots out at us. Alan is non-stop with all the awesome info he presents to the Cave Dweller community. All I can say is wow. Hold on tight and get ready to keep hitting the 10 second reverse arrow to take notes. Nothing more to say other than that. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show, Cave Dwellers. I'll see you on the flip side. But that's not very well accepted in paleoanthropology, but it's been pretty well accepted by the press. And paleoanthropology is more herdo in Ethiopia, which has some skulls at about 180,000 years and then some fragmentary remains at about 200,000 years. But the interesting thing about herdo morphology is you don't see it in Africa today. It's over in Australia now. But that's the most widely accepted uh, first modern humans. And But at, at Jebel or Hood, there's in the paper where they made this claim, they say they had some traits of modern humans, which makes them part of the mix in Africa, which led to modern humans. But fish also have some traits of, of modern humans, and they're not really modern humans. So they're borrowing a concept that's new to them from multi-regionalism of mosaic evolution and then applying that and bringing that into the uh, recent out of Africa school and, and using that to argue they're the first modern humans. But then at the same time in China, you have Walong Dong, who in my opinion was just a grade of, of Jebel Erhud over in North Africa and has by far the oldest ossified chin and, and some other pretty modern traits within that you don't see in Africa that far back. But he had a slightly smaller brain than Jebel Erhud, but that's the way it tends to run usually as you get over into Europe and Africa. And for some reason, people tended to have larger brains over there. But they didn't necessarily look as modern as other people with smaller brains looked over in Asia through time. So then speaking with Australia and Asia, I noticed in your, uh, you know, again, referring back to the form you filled out, you spoke about or wrote about... And again, I may screw these names up, but that's okay. Sahul and Sunda? Sahul, when you get a cold period and the ocean level drops, a big continent forms around Australia, which includes what's now New Guinea and Tasmania. And that's Sahul. And Sunda is a closely neighboring big continent that forms that's now Southeast Asia. But Sunda and Sahul don't quite get, never quite got to the Philippines. 
So now we have humans in the Philippines at 600,000 years ago. We don't have their fossils, but the oldest uh, fossils we have from the Philippines, which were a lot younger than that, are these little people kind of like Homo florensiensis that they're calling Homo luzonsensis. And they used to just have one foot bone from it, from Homo luzonsensis, and they were claiming it was the oldest known pygmy, but I was pointing out that it looked a lot more like Homo floresiensis. Then we went back and dug more in the cave and found a lot more fragments. And then they published a paper and said, yes, indeed, it does have affinities with Homo floresiensis, but quite different. And there's only two members of Homo known with curved phalanges, curved hand bones for grasping branches, and that's the way monkeys are. And that's a Homo naledi in Africa and Homo luzonsensis. So that suggests that both of those people probably were swinging around on branches a lot and not all that long ago. So then we're saying, or you're thinking that, so the Sahu and the Sunda were kind of like land bridges that connected? Uh, they never quite connected, but they got a lot bigger when the, when the ocean level was real low. So they got closer, so it wasn't as hard during those cold periods for people to get across. And exactly when they got across, we don't really know. You know, most people are thinking at least 80,000 for Sahul for Australia now, where it used to be 40, 50,000. But, you know, back then they used to say 10,000 for the Philippines. And, you know, I, nobody was expecting them to find a, a reliably 600,000 year old rhino butcher site in the Philippines, or 140,000 wouldn't have surprised me. It would have surprised most people, but 600,000, that's really far back. That's more than twice as old as Homo naledi. You know, you're getting back almost to uh, Habiline times in Africa, not quite. And you're getting 600,000 years ago, that's when, you know, your Neanderthals and your Denisovans were just starting to form and diversify from Homo heidelbergensis for the Neanderthals and Hexian Homo erectus for the Denisovans in China. So that's way, way, way back there. That's a lot longer than um, most people would have anticipated that humans might have been there in the Philippines. And these are also very archaic looking humans, too. You know, they don't look like they could come just from Homo erectus. Very good. Now, we've mentioned, and if you want to touch on it, I know you've touched on it a lot, but Homo floresiensis. What? Uh... The Hobbit, yes. Yes. Now, how long ago was that? discovered well they were discovered about 15 years ago i think but uh at first some paleoanthropologists were trying to say they were degenerates disease suffering degenerates and there's only one that's pretty complete and there's been some questions about the age it's turned out they were a little older than what is thought i mean i i tend to think that they they didn't survive the tobler eruption so that they're older than about seventy-four thousand years if they survived that, it would be quite remarkable, and probably they could basically live out in the ocean if they could survive something like that. And then the other prevailing theory was that they they were dwarfed Homo erectus, and they turned the island dwarfism and gigantism hypothesis around, which I happen to have worked on quite a bit, a lot longer than they have, because I was finding dwarf and giant forms on these peninsulas in California new types, you know, dwarfed elephants and giant rodent, giant mice, that sort of thing, you know, giant hedgehog. 
And they turned it around for, it actually says for omnivores, what humans are, we're supposed to get bigger on an island. But they turned that around and said instead smaller. And so they had, because they believe that everybody, every fossil human in Eurasia came only from Homo erectus or later forms that came from Homo erectus, like Heidelbergensis or Archaic Homo sapiens. And so they thought it was a dwarf uh, Homo erectus. And I caught quite a bit of heat for saying that wasn't true, even though there was a few, a couple of paleoanthropologists, when they first saw the hobbit, they thought it was a haveling. They weren't told the age or where it was found. So there were good reasons to think that Homo floresiensis was a relic haveling, but that was very unpopular about five years ago. But then in 2016, they processed a lot of matrix on Flores Island where the hobbit's from, and they found some fragments, and lo and behold, they were 20% smaller than the much later ones. Whereas if they were dwarf Homo erectus, these are 700,000 years old, the prediction would be that they should be a lot bigger and a lot more like Homo erectus. But they were smaller, and they had fewer Homo erectus traits. And they kind of held on to the dwarf Homo erectus, but then uh, Debbie Argue et al. in 2017, the next year after that was found, wrote a paper and did massive cladistic studies and said, no, this is not a dwarf Homo erectus. This is some sort of maybe haveline or something close to that that it, sur- it survives somehow down there. Awesome. Awesome. Man, it's... Uh... This is this fantastic. I appreciate all the information that, that you that you have. I mean, just to get more towards a personal note of things, who I guess who was your influence for getting into I guess Neanderthals or uh, paleoanthropology, paleoontology? I mean, who was your influence for getting into all this? Well, for paleontology, my father used to take me out when starting when I was three years old. And when I was three, four, or five years old, I actually found quite a few fossils. Back then, it was legal to collect vertebrate fossils. You're supposed to have a permit now. So in a lot of places, people need to be careful. So that was for paleontology. And my father was a little bit interested in paleoanthropology. I would say that for paleoanthropology, it was more my professors. And then Dr. Tim White, I worked with him as a volunteer a little bit and took him out to a, a site I found, which they excavated and documented. And then uh, my professors at UCSB, but I didn't really um, focus on paleoanthropology until 15 years ago, even though I've been interested in it all my life. And why I did that, I don't know. Maybe just because it, it seems to be one of my stronger suits in science. Well, I appreciate you sticking to that and getting back into that with all the information you have. It's I definitely appreciate that. Uh, let's see. So another personal one here that uh, kind of just started asking my guests on here is what theory of evolution do you believe? Such as, I mean, I guess, well, you, you've even spoke before where we kind of, so did we evolve from monkeys? I guess basically is what I'm. Well, that's an interesting question. And creationists say, oh, we, you people say we came from monkeys. And then they say, no, we did. Well, we actually did come from monkeys. If you really understand primate evolution and you believe in, uh, but we believe in, in primate paleontology because you go back uh, far enough, but with one caveat, monkeys today are very highly derived. They don't look so much like the kind of monkeys that we came from. 
we've been great apes for quite a long time. And in cladistics, which is kind of a new hot thing in my lifetime, you don't stop being something you used to be and start being something else. So we're bacteria, we're fish, we're amphibians, we're mammal-like reptiles, we're mammals, we're primates, we're monkeys. You know, we were monkeys before, so in modern biology, we still are monkeys. But those monkeys that we came from and that monkeys today also came from looked a good bit different than monkeys today do either in Africa or in the Americas or Asia. And uh, I'm an evolutionist, but there's a few little differences. I don't uh, believe that evolution is driven so much by mutations. And in uh, molecular biology, there's been some support for that of late. I believe that evolution has more to do with the shuffling around of things between different populations, things getting expressed, which were put to sleep, things getting put to sleep, which were more strongly expressed. Apparently, that's a lot to do with our larger brains, ARHGAP11B. A lot of what that gene and A are for is to shut down our genes which protect us from hyperencephalization too much to keep our brains from getting too big. So that may be why some people have trouble with getting even too big of brains because those genes have been suppressed a little bit. So I am very much an evolutionist, but I, I support diversity in thought. I'm not against creationism like people in our OA are, the recent out of Africa. And creationists have actually, in some cases, were right where they were wrong like seeing human evolution as more of a spectrum than a, than a linear progression. And pretty much everybody in society and science now knows that our human evolution is not a linear progression where you just fit every fossil into a line. It's more like a big fan, and you're looking at different points on that fan and fossils at different places and all interrelated, like a braided stream where the water is flowing back and forth and between different stream channels, and Lee Berger has supported that model. And I I thought I had invented that model, but then I found an obscure chat group where a couple of years before I had come up with braided streams, a couple of paleoanthropologists had used the model. So, But it wasn't on social media until I started pitching that model, and I think it's a pretty good model for human evolution. What was that called again? The braided stream hypothesis of human evolution. A braided stream is something, that for those of us who work a lot in the kind of environments where you find fossils, fossil mammals, land mammals, work in a lot. And it's where you have a valley, and there's all these different channels that are flowing into each other, flowing out of each other. Or, or another model would even be the deltaic model. And a delta is kind of like a braiding stream where the river fans out, and it has all these channels, and they're flowing into each other. and out of each other, and very complex. Human evolution is very, very complex. It's not simple linear progression like was thought even 20 years ago, or like when when I was a young man, like was generally thought. (laughs) My goodness. (laughs) Thank you. I I appreciate all this information, Alan. It's fantastic. Let's go on to... So then I guess really you just answered this other question I was going to ask you, and the reason I brought it up or I'm bringing it up is uh, the other day I was watching Ancient Aliens, so <laughs> that's why. Oh, no, you're, you're not going to put me into aliens. I'm not against aliens, but that just isn't uh, my area. And I've never seen an alien bigger than about a 
uh, about a fourth the size of a pea. So I don't really have much experience with them. I spent many years out in the wilderness living out there. Never seen a Bigfoot truck or seen a Bigfoot or never seen any UFOs of any bigger than just tiny little grain-sized ones or about the size of a piece of wheat. I seen stuff flying around with some sort of unidentified object, flying <laughs> object. I got you. <laughs> no, that's and I wasn't, you know, trying to to pin you up on anything. I just it, to me, I just like to ask the question, you know, whether someone believes in like a otherworldly influence on evolution. Well, I yeah, actually, I do believe in um, panspermia, and that's pretty big in India now. And I'm pretty active in India, and then there is it's a little bit active in England, and it is related to that. And what we believe, and what there's building evidence for, is that basically any place you have liquid water you're going to have life that's related to the life on Earth and that our genes are going back and forth through space. But so far as aliens coming down here and, and putting genes in us and that sort of thing, you know, I have associates that are into that sort of thing, but I don't need to invoke that to explain human evolution. Now, that could be a process in our history. I certainly can't rule it out, but... It's explainable to me that from the time we were monkeys that we could have evolved without taking in too many genes from space. Probably a few, though, because you've got virus floating in from space and you get horizontal gene transfer. And uh, so we probably picked up a few that way from retrovirus and stuff falling out, falling in from space. But, you know, how much influence that has so far as our bones and teeth, I don't really need that. I don't need to invoke that. To, it could have happened, but it doesn't. Ha- it doesn't need to have happened, from my understanding of the human fossil record. Now you said that the word that you had used was that panspermia. How do you- panspermia? Yes. Okay, very good. Just wanted to make sure I got that word. And that's kind of that's kind of like multi-regionalism, where we're all interbreeding. We've got genes flowing with other worlds through space, but more like on the microorganismal level. You know, I've never seen any aliens of any size and you know i'm not saying they don't exist but but as a scientist you know that's something i don't have a lot you know i don't have any of their bones you know nobody's got any of their genes it's published them at least so it's just not something i can really address i i can't rule it out at all but it's just not not something i require to explain human evolution very well understood and i appreciate the answer thank you very much on that coming down the last few questions here uh, one other question I w- was uh, looking to uh, start asking my guests, and I borrowed it from uh, someone that I uh, had just interviewed recently. I kind of stole it off of her, Gabby LaPera. The question I want to ask is, what book or media are you ingesting currently? So what are you reading or listening to? Well, when I was younger, even as a child, my father used to bring me to the university libraries a lot, especially at UCSB which is where I graduated from and did some graduate school there. So that's what I used to do. But then I kind of evolved into using search engines and that sort of thing. And there can be some paywalls sometimes, but sometimes you can pick up quite a bit just from the abstract. And that's what I've been doing more lately. And a lot of what I do is peer review literature, you know, 90% of my research. But I like to look at photos a lot, and I like to get good photos, and I like to measure them 
you know, rather than being able to go into museums and actually hold the human fossils, which not a lot of people have the privilege to do. When I was younger, I held a lot of casts and examined them and maybe a few originals. So my research just changed a lot. And I, I still want to get to the libraries, but there's just so much information that you can get by searches now that you can actually do quite a bit of research that way. And, and even though I use 90% peer-reviewed literature, I'm quite a critic of the peer-reviewed literature. I have a lot of bad things to say about them, and yet I'm almost, you know, I'm 90% reliant upon them also at the same time. So it's kind of a love-hate relationship. For example, when they found the Trekkilos footprints on Crete in Greece, 5.7 million years old, they wouldn't let them publish them. Paleoanthropology journals, they didn't understand them. So they had to publish them in a geology journal, and that delayed our finding out about them for a couple of years, and they're very important which kind of pissed a lot of us off. Those are the oldest known primate foot with the big toe in line with the other toes. So they're very important, whatever they are. I feel they're probably even homo or homo-like myself. I think they're probably the oldest homo tracks. But I'm pretty confident they're hominid. They're not great ape. I mean, why would a great ape evolve a a homo-like foot and then go extinct if it was the first to evolve that? You wouldn't think that would happen, but it, it may have gotten passed around a bit before it wound up in us by introgressions and that sort of thing, you know, in, in mosaic evolution, because you go back far enough, what, you know, what's a hominid, what's a great ape? You can't really say, you know, Artipithecus has a great ape foot, yet they were walking upright. So it's, you go back far enough, the whole great ape hominid human thing breaks down where were kind of like mixtures of both. And that's what you would even expect as you're going in time, and that's what you see in genetics. Is that we were actually mixing with all the great apes up until about four to seven million years ago on a pretty regular basis. We've got a lot of gorilla-like derived genes, a lot of orangutan-like derived genes, you know, where these things that we were breeding with and getting those genes from, they were already on their way to being orangutans and gorillas and chimps like that, or even unknown primates in some cases for those genes or unknown early humans. Awesome. Thank you very much for that answer as well. My goodness. See, so the last few questions here, is there, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you would like to share with anybody? Well, I already mentioned linear evolution and there's a, with Neanderthals, There's been a school of thought that kind of caught on early where they were like dumb brutes and inferior, and that's why they went extinct, and that's relying upon linear evolution. And then now there can even be kind of a new age or other kind of school where, oh, they were so superior to us. And I was in the past maybe a little bit guilty of that myself. I mean, they had bigger brains than us, so probably they were a little smarter than us, too. There's no strong association between brain size and intelligence in people today. You can have a pretty big brain and be pretty smart and have a little tiny one and be pretty smart. So probably, you know, Neanderthals, they were probably better at us in some things and not as good at others. You know, they weren't inherently superior, inherently inferior to us. And in general, at any given time, it's not these superior humans blooming out and killing everybody else and eating them all and completely replacing them. It's more like just genes flowing 
from kin to kin. And that's actually something that was in genetic and um, cultural anthropology for a long time, that there were all these kinship relationships and, and gene flow, that it wasn't like the waves of cannibals with the more advanced tools and the bigger bands and the better language. They come in and just eat everybody and replace them. They don't like to admit that it was about cannibalism before, but it was. You know, I remember the day when, you know, they were better cannibals than the Neanderthals or, or the Asians were, you know, because they, they used to think everybody were cannibals back then, but probably they weren't quite all or they weren't as cannibalistic. And the only evidence of Neanderthal human cannibalism is a Neanderthal jaw and a burial with a young modern human boy. There's no evidence can Neanderthals ever ate our ancestors. I expect they did, but there's no evidence of it. They ate each other. Yeah, I kind of fall into that that train of thought too, the mindset where there were well, I, I did previously to where they were kind of mindless ogres that just swung billy clubs or clubs at anybody that uh, you know, any anything or anybody that moved. So and it's interesting to follow how that scenario or that stereotype is changing so much and so fast lately it's it's good to see and it's it's amazing to see as well well the ogre analogy is interesting because even today some people are very neanderthal like and it could have been in the dark age when people were starving and european populations were low and crop failures there could have been some neanderthalish people that were eating people you know they were described as big you know, that could have been a little bit of a relic, but genetically they would have been the same as everybody else pretty much, except for a few morphology genes. If you study some guy like Mr. Valuev, the former heavyweight boxing champion, you know, his genes are going to be like everybody else. It's just his morphology, which is very, very Neanderthal-like. And they used to claim that he had a thyroid disorder, which he's denied. He's way too healthy for that. And you can't be the champion champion weight heavyweight boxer you know then your your bones are going to break from the condition so um neanderthals are still with us you know they've been mixed around and stirred around and their morphology has less advantage now but they're still with this and maybe they were with this in the dark age and kind of were, were ogres you know whoever was eating you you probably didn't have a very good opinion of it <laughs> you probably wanted to eat them too you know there was a lot of cannibalism in the dark age there's a lot of evidence for that. <laughs> well, that's about the, the the extent of what I had to talk to you with, Alan. And, and again, you know, I, I just appreciate it so much, man. There was so much information. And assure you, I promise you, I'll be reaching back out to you at some point here once I digest all of this information to see if we can get you back on here because it was some fantastic information. And uh, Okay, it was nice to talk to you in person. Yeah, Alan, you as well. And if you could, a lot of times what I'll ask too is if you could, or if my guests could just email me the links that you want me to post for the community, my my cave dweller community to get in touch with you or uh, anything like that. And uh, another thing I, I asked for was anyone that you know, or that you have a, a friendship with, relationship with, that would be interested in coming on the Neanderthal mind, you can include that in that me email as well. And uh no, definitely I'll get in touch with them. And uh, All right. Yeah, man. But again, Alan, thank you so much. It, it has been fantastic and so much awesome information that it's going to take me a while. Oh, I'll, I'll close with one point. Cave-dwelling Neanderthals. Neanderthals didn't all live in caves. Most professionals think that. But when I lived in Ukraine, 
and hung out in the museums there and got some translations from the Soviet literature. It was well known. They lived in houses. They built houses out of mammoth bones. One was on display in a museum there in Kiev. So uh, that's kind of a stereotype of Neanderthals, which isn't true. A lot of them lived in caves, but that's where taphonomy comes in. We find the ones that lived in caves because that's where they got fossilized. Gotcha. Okay, good. And and I kind of use that just as a a trigger to, again, it's the stereotype, but it kind of connects the community to the Neanderthal sort of thing. So, but, uh, and again, like you said, you know, a lot more information coming out that they did not dwell in caves and, uh, not always, some certainly did, but, and the ones that didn't dwell in caves, we don't have a very good idea how they look. You know, they were Neanderthals. We can tell that from their technology and all, but we don't have really have fossils of them. It's definitely an exciting time with the uh, evolutionary study of things. It's definitely an exciting and, and uh, a very fluid time with all the uh, discoveries that are coming out. As you had mentioned, Lee Berger, I think he's uncovering a lot of pretty good information. And in I'm not sure what the dig that Darian is, is called, but, you know, I do see a lot of reports coming from him about. Well, they're, they're involved in a lot of places. Rising Star, they have a lot of locations. The Homo naledi they're finding is actually from a dry period. Most of what they find is during wet periods when there was a lot of water going through those caves and putting limestone on the bones to preserve them. Okay. Very good. Well, Alan, thank you again very much. You know, I appreciate you joining me this evening uh, on the Neanderthal Mind. It's, it's been awesome. It's been fantastic. Yeah, I'll definitely keep in touch with you. And, you know, like I said, I'll be looking for your email for all the links you want me to include in the show notes. I assure you I'll be getting back in touch with you to, to see if uh, you'd be. All right. I look forward to it. Have a good day. You as well, Alan. Thank you. Okay. Wow, wow, wow. Is all I can say to all that knowledge being splayed out there for us. I want to thank Alan again for sticking around longer than the allotted time to take us to class. Cave dwellers, I know you will be overflowing with knowledge after that. Again, repeat, repeat, and repeat to take notes. Absolutely amazing content. Thanks again, cave dwellers, for joining me weekly on the Neanderthal Mind, giving me your time, your ears, and your minds. As I have said previously, I would love to hear from you about how you feel the podcast is going. Is it what you were expecting? Are there things I can do differently to make this any better? If I don't hear from you, I can only assume that I am giving you what you want from the Neanderthal Mind. I will take all criticisms that you give, and try to mold the show to your liking. But I can't promise I'll be able to do everything everyone wants me to do. So please, email the show at theneanderthalmind at gmail.com and go to our website, theneanderthalmind.com and leave me some messages. Until next time, cave dwellers. And here's a little of what's to come next week when we sit down with author Dr. Rebecca Rag Sykes about her new book, Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art. A fantastic listen as well as an awesome read for books about our Neanderthal ancestors. There is some history there, but there is a lot of very sort of funny little facts and strange things um, about particular fossils, and I really wanted to put that in as well. And that that whole storytelling side is really important to, to, to how I work. Um, even though you know I've been in academia for a long time 
and you're very much trained in the scientific method and you know how to write a scientific paper is is one thing and um, but I didn't want the book to be like that at all I wanted it to be you know I wanted it to be absolutely rooted in the science and the data but kind of then describe that and you know present ideas around that but also take a little leap beyond and you know have some some speculation and some inferences that are informed by what we know from the archaeology um, but be a little bit creative and try and help people i guess see the world thanks for listening to the neanderthal mind podcast thank you for tuning in to today's episode if you love what you heard subscribe rate and review the Neanderthal Mind podcast wherever you download your podcasts. If you know anyone that you think would enjoy this podcast, please recommend the Neanderthal Mind to them. Until next week, my fellow cave dwellers, don't forget to leave your cave drawings and comments on our wall at theneanderthalmind.com.